When we shut down production on live studio audience episodes of this podcast one year ago this week, I always assumed I'd get a week or three off from flying back and forth between the East and West Coasts, and then I'd get right back to collecting my frequent flyer miles. But it's now been a full year of various levels of shutdown all over the country, and my frequent flyer mile account is incredibly lonely, and I'm still sitting at home. President Biden announced this week um, that in his administration, he will have more than met his original goal of 100 million vaccines in arms in his first 100 days. He will actually surpass it by reaching that 100 million mark in his first 60 days. And vaccine rollouts in many states are moving ahead of schedule. CDC guidance on social distancing has relaxed. Schools across the country are beginning to reopen to more in-person instruction. And yet still there are numerous roadblocks to a full return. If if only there were a precedent for this type of pandemic and tragedy that we could look to for lessons on how to fully move past uh, a worldwide pandemic like this. Oh, wait, there is. I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon is honored to talk to one of America's leading historians. Nancy Bristow is here to talk us through the incredible parallels between the worldwide influenza pandemic of 1918 and this year's COVID disaster. How many similarities are there between the pandemics of 1918 and 2020? What should we learn from 2020 that we didn't learn in 1918? And how the heck are we going to get along? You know what is so fascinating about your book to me um, is that you didn't write it after this happened, you know, um, right. I was I was looking into it, and and for listeners, um, it's called American Pandemic, um, and you wrote it a f- several years ago, yeah. That's correct. I think I published it in about 2011 or 12, but it took me 15 years to write it. So I've been working out since the mid 1990s. And and who knew that it would be so timely and so important eight years after? Still, you know, ten years after well, when 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 you wrote it. And when you write a book about a catastrophe, you really don't want to be timely. Um, While I was working on it, I had a a couple of cousins who kept saying, oh, you should get your book out this year. We're having a really bad flu season. And they would always (laughs) laugh that I was missing my moment. Um, (laughs) Right. Well, this worked out better. You get two moments out of it. (laughs) No one one wants wants your moment when you write about things as horrific as a a global pandemic. Right. It has been fascinating, nevertheless, to to see the parallels. But but I, I do I obviously want to talk about those. But can, can for readers who for listeners, sorry, who don't already know, who haven't heard on the news at least five hundred times the past year, we're talking about the pandemic in nineteen eighteen between nineteen eighteen and nineteen twenty. What that's right. Can you just tell us how that started? What happened? How how it spread um, around the world and killed what fifty million people? Somewhere between 50 and 100 million people were killed. And it is hard to know the numbers because we just didn't have the same kind of public health infrastructure that we have in 2020. But it probably started uh, in the United States. So the name Spanish flu is a misnomer, which we can talk about later. During the spring, among American troops in Kansas and then in spreading through uh, American Um, training camps, epidemiologists noticed what seemed to be a high number of influenza deaths. And in postmortems, we're noticing uh, really soggy, awful conditions in the lungs, suggesting hemorrhaging. And this seemed strange, um, but the American population was unaware that they were probably experiencing the first wave of this global pandemic. And it spread 
with the American troops to Europe and to the 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 uh, battlefronts of the First World War and, and into the civilian population as well. And by the summer had really spread all the way around the world, but wasn't of particular note. People were aware that it was happening, but it, it wasn't of a scale that made people say, you know, something awful is coming. But as influenza viruses often do, uh, it mutated and it mutated into a really deadly version, that which we associate with the 1918 pandemic. And literally almost instantaneously in the United States, uh, in Africa and in Europe, this new wave just exploded. And it was both highly contagious and also quite deadly. Uh, and it but spread it was around an the world influenza. over a couple of months. It was influenza. It was an, so, so not unlike what we have nowadays in our different versions of the flu that we get every year this was simply one of those mutations of the normal influenza virus it was and that's why we had expected that the next terrible pandemic would be influenza because it mutates so frequently and if you get the wrong mutation in other words if you get something that is both deadly and that spreads easily human to human uh, and is a completely original virus. In other words, because of a mutation, there's no um, pre-existing immunity to it. That's how you get a global pandemic. And we'd expected it to be, a, or some of us had expected it to be an influenza virus uh, that would next bring the, the globe, in a sense, to its knees. Uh, and instead, of course, we got the coronavirus. But this, this new mutation in the fall, late summer, fall of 1918, literally spread around the globe in a couple of months. Uh, it had a more Mortality rate, well, excuse me, uh, an infection rate that was somewhere between a quarter and a third of human beings in the U.S., around 28% of the entire country had the flu. Uh, around the globe, it may have been as high as a third of the world population. Some 500 million people were sickened. Uh, and then, as we say, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people worldwide died. In the United States, we lost 675,000 Americans, a figure that used to seem unimaginable. Mm. Uh, in those days, that would have been just a little over a half a million more deaths than would have been expected from influenza. So in terms of excess death rates, uh, quite comparable to what we're experiencing today, though the U.S. population was significantly smaller, about 100 million in those days versus the, I think we're at about, what, 330 million today. So... For for those folks who and I I said so in the introduction, but but you're a historian. You are a a a professor of history and not necessarily a medical epidemiologist type. Um, that's not necessarily your field. So wh why why did you initially want to write about this? And I want to remind folks. I say it again. You did this several years ago, way before we could have dreamed or imagined that we were going to have another worldwide pandemic like this. What made you feel like this was a moment in history that not enough people knew about and you wanted to write about it? Well, in some ways, it was a natural next project because I was a scholar of the First World War era. I was interested uh -huh. in questions around the power of the state and its relationship to citizens during wartime. Not coincidentally, myself, a child of the Vietnam War era, perhaps trying to study issues that were close to me, uh, but in a time that was distant to me. But the the real story is that I was on a hiking trip with my father and uh, my husband, and uh, we got to chatting. And for the first time in my life, I realized that my grandfather had been orphaned, not just coincidentally, but as part of the influenza pandemic. I knew he had oh, lost wow. both of his parents as a 14, 15 year old, uh, but I just didn't know 
that it was part of the pandemic. I knew about the pandemic. I knew my grandfather had been orphaned. I had never put the two together. Uh, and once I knew that, I was looking for a new project and it just seemed like this was the thing. He was the child of two Irish immigrants. Um, they were you know, working people. They did not have money. Uh, so we don't have any information about his experience. And he, he passed away long, long ago. So for me, it was an attempt to figure out what it would have been like for him and his parents as they went through this, because we really didn't have much information about the, the literal sort of lived experience of being in the midst of this awful pandemic in the U.S. So what is the most fascinating to me, and I think to anyone who will read your book or, or listen to us here, is the number of the, the parallels between what happened then in the United States um, and what has happened now? You know, I think a lot of us assume and that, that you know, obviously the, the virus can spread more rapidly in 2020 and 2021 because we are more mobile as a society. But we also have so much more information or misinformation being thrown at us that um <laughs> that we have conspiracy theories and and anti-vaxxers and and other issues that certainly rose in arose in 2020 that could probably be tied back to the fact that we were all stuck inside and stressed out and our 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 stress levels and the, our individual psychology last year um over the past year has been so um tightly wound is that a way to say it but i always have assumed that you know that was a lot of those things were unique to 2020 and 2021 but you, that's not necessarily the case is it a lot of the same things happened in 20 in 1918 that happened in 2020 um as far as the the sociology and the the way society reacted and the divisions that happened amongst people in america is that true well, the divisions were were somewhat different. I guess there are many, many parallels from the failure of presidential leadership to the sort of what leads to a scattershot approach. We have handled this state by state and community by community rather than with a, a coordinated federal response, which is not the way to handle a pandemic. Um, viruses really don't care about state borders or even mm. national borders. Um, I think the ways in which it's landed inequitably among certain populations and the ways in which issues of race uh, and of class have really been uh, profoundly important. When it comes to politicizing, that's where I see it being not quite identical. During World War I, um, or I should put it another way, this pandemic was happening during World War I. So there was already a lot of sort of government pressure to behave according to certain standards. So for instance, you had to sign up for the draft and you weren't supposed to eat wheat on certain days. And so when the public health measures are announced in communities, they're able to politicize that by saying, this is part of the war effort. If you mm. don't wear your mask, you're a slacker. And this was a time when no one wanted to be accused of being unpatriotic. There were laws in place that made that a dangerous uh, stance to take. So it was very politicized in a sense, but in a different way. It wasn't linked to party politics. It wasn't in opposition to the public health measures. In fact, the politicizing really helped to sell the public health measures during 1918. Now, Realistically, that doesn't mean that there wasn't pushback. And certainly we do see, as you say, the sociology of this thing feels familiar because in 1918, as in 2020, there were those who resisted. 
What was different is I think at the beginning of the 1918 pandemic, people were so anxious um, to be told what might help them, what might protect them. And there was a great deal of confidence in modern medicine at that time. People were aware of, if not the name, the concept of the bacteriological revolution, which is to say modern medicine had figured out how to identify mm. the causal agent of bacterial-caused illnesses. So there was this hope that it would be possible for science to protect the American population, and people were willing to do what they were told to do by the experts because the experts had served them very well in the preceding decades. So it takes a little bit of time for the pushback uh, in 1918, whereas in 2020, uh, it was immediate and, and based right. in very different things. Did people trust medicine? Did people trust President Wilson? Uh, Woodrow Wilson was president at the time. Did he handle it in a way that 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 made people believe and trust the government, or did he use? sort of those uh, politicization tactics in order to get people to follow direction? Neither of those. Wilson did nothing. Ah. Wilson never spoke to the American public in writing or in speech about the 1918 pandemic. 675,000 of his citizens died, and he never spoke of it publicly. He was so preoccupied with the war and then with the peace that he did not want to distract the nation. And so he actually not only did nothing in terms of communicating about the pandemic or helping to spread the public health measure, he actually was contributing to the pandemic itself. Uh, he did not slow troop movements. He did not ask for the Liberty Loan um, kickoff to be delayed or did not suggest that perhaps large public gatherings were a bad idea in October. Uh, instead, he allowed those to go on and that likely heightened um, the death rates in some communities. Did no one realize that at the time? Did he was he not criticized by anyone for not getting involved, or was there just general ignorance back then that that he should have a role? That's a good question. I'm just not aware of people critiquing him. In fact, I wasn't really aware that he hadn't spoken of it uh, until some other scholars pointed it out to me. Um, so I think the expectations of what the president would do and of what the public health um, establishment would do were different. The leader of the public health service, Rupert Blue, was very active. Public health reports was re, was a, a, a journal that was essentially published every week. So public health leadership across the country was getting information from DC, uh, and the public health people were very very active in communicating from the state to the excuse me from the federal to the state to the local levels. Sometimes disagreeing with each other, sometimes locking horns, but there was quite a bit of of conversation. So perhaps it wasn't an expectation of the president. Looking back, it's very striking um, how little the president had intervened and the ways in which perhaps given his wartime powers could have done some useful things. Um, but no, I don't think there really was much criticism of him at the time. There was criticism of him for many things, but not about the pandemic. So we all know that we should drink more water and I'm bad at it myself. I forget to do it. And, you know, by the time you feel too thirsty, it's totally too late. You're dehydrated. You're lightheaded. I have the same problem all the time. It's really hard to get anything done if you're dehydrated, too. But you can snap out of it with this new drink that I have found to be 
sort of incredible. It's called Hydrant, and it's a drink mix powder, and it's got electrolytes in it. It's got the sodium, the potassium, the magnesium, and the zinc, and it's made with real fruit juice powder. So if you're like me and you're not into just drinking plain water, I'll admit it. I grew up um, with sugar in my diet all the time, so I, I'm not good at drinking plain water. But this has real fruit juice powder in it, and it doesn't have any artificial sweeteners or fake colors or any of that nonsense at all. It's all real pure, and it tastes really good, and it will totally hydrate you. Proper hydration has been tied to better mood, better focus, mental clarity, more energy, better skin, all that stuff, not being lightheaded when you stand up like I can get. But water alone doesn't hydrate you as quickly. You know, you can drink water, and it's very good for you, but if you want to really get hydrated, you need to have electrolytes too. And um, so drinks with these electrolytes can hydrate you so much faster. Hydrant can even help you get better rest. Hydrant Sleep is a whole new bedtime mix that they've made that's carefully formulated to promote restful sleep and hydration. Hydrant Sleep includes melatonin, magnesium, L-theanine, GABA, and chamomile to promote restful, high-quality sleep. And it's backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love it, send it back. They'll give you a full refund. You do. You really need to try it for yourself to see how good it tastes and how well it actually works. Try Hydrant today and take up to 25% off of your first order. Start taking the steps to a healthier hydration habits and start feeling and tasting the difference. We've got your special deal for our listeners to save 20% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash heck or just enter our promo code heck at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash heck and enter promo code heck for 20% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash heck and enter the promo code heck to save 20% or look for the link in our show notes. And we really thank them for sponsoring the podcast Hydrant, where water meets wellness. What about, I mean, we've seen quite a bit of, of, there's been a disparity, to say the least, um, in this, in our current pandemic, um, when it comes to the populations that have been affected, um, and certainly fault lines being exposed when it comes to access to certain, uh, healthcare to certain information. Um, did they have same similar, they have similar issues then? I mean, 1918 America was hardly as developed as, um, 2020 America is. Were, were there more deaths in certain demographics? Well, that's one of the things that's one of the puzzles that remains is we just don't have the statistics to, to bear out what one has to assume was the case uh, in fact, at the time, there were some assumptions made based on statistics that African-American populations in the U.S. were actually faring better during the pandemic. Whether that's because deaths weren't being counted, though, is the big question mark for many of us. Uh, what's really interesting, though, is if you step away from what do the statistics tell us, because they're not very informative, but look really at material conditions, it's very clear that certain populations Um, If they were not suffering higher death rates and that we don't know, they were certainly suffering nevertheless. And what I mean by that is if you were living near the poverty line and you lost a week's wages, you might then be hungry. You might not have the cold to heat your house. You might lose your home. Uh, You might um, 
literally end up putting children in an orphanage because you can't feed them. And so for those who were poorer, the influenza pandemic with no social safety net at all to protect them really suffered a terrible um, material uh, devastation. And then and we had no that, social safety net, just to be clear. No, in 1918, no. there were no federal stimulus. There was no social security. There was no Medicare. There was nothing at all. Correct. That's I mean, exactly right. It, people had to rely on local charities, which were often um, very persnickety would be a polite way to put it. We're often so bound up with sort of white middle class social and cultural standards that the poor were treated very badly much of the time when they would ask for aid. And then add into that then issues of race. This is a world in which segregation is prominent, whether it's uh, de jure segregation in the South by law or simply de facto in the North. The reality is as cities opened up emergency hospitals or you know the wings of their regular hospitals, people of color would often be excluded entirely uh, mm-hmm. In the city of Philadelphia, they opened emergency hospitals for the general public, but uh, African-Americans were not admitted at all. It was up to the black community to open their own emergency hospitals, which they did. Um, in Richmond, African-Americans could go to the emergency hospital, but they were relegated to the basement. If you've been in the basement of a hospital, that's not a place one wants to be. So again, though we don't have statistics to suggest that the death rates were higher, we know that the material conditions were much, much worse for certain populations. One thing that's really different about 1918 and 2020 in terms of how those inequities would play out is that there really wasn't anything to be done about the flu. You could only treat the symptoms to keep people comfortable. Um, But because we didn't have ventilators, we didn't have antibiotics, it didn't in the end probably matter uh, whether you were rich or poor if you got that virus. What was different was could you be comfortable? Would the rest of your family be going hungry? Those kinds of issues were definitely at play. How did that inequity with regard to the pandemic and the and the actual medical issues and the inequities when, when it comes to access to healthcare, et cetera, did that filter over in any way? Did it did it spill over into any other social um reform actions like like we've started to try to see happen in 2020? Just as we saw in 2020, um I think communities that were facing these inequities often spoke up. And I think in particular of the Black community, there was a preacher in D.C., for instance, the Reverend um, Francis Grimke, who gives a sermon in which he suggests that the flu pandemic was really God's way of trying to convince white supremacists that they were wrong in their actions, (laughs) that by making the people equal before the virus, God was trying to, to make it evident to the people that really they had to begin to treat one another as human beings. Um, We see during the pandemic for the first time, uh, black nurses who had been trying to get access um, to the the nursing corps and the military finally admitted and allowed to minister to the sick among among the military men. Uh, So there is this call for democracy in the midst of a pandemic when we really need, quote, all hands on deck do we really mean all hands? And I think there are people who are really pushing for the opening up and the demanding of the rights that were theirs, Um, but not in the same way that we see in 2020. I think um, a couple of things, certainly the contemporary awareness about state violence, um, it has just become unacceptable. The reality is in 1917, 1919, we see terrible racial conflagrations in the United States, uh, but 
they play out so differently. Um, there are terrible um, destruction of black communities by white um, white Americans who simply invade them. Uh, and they just play out very differently than in 2020 when I think the white community had a little bit, hmm, how do I even want to say this? My hope is that there may have been some racial reckoning taking place finally that could have some long-term consequences for the good um, as a result of 2020. Um, the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, alongside the inequitable realities of the pandemic, I think have laid bare for those who weren't already aware just how unjust our systems are and how truly violent our systems are, um, and that hopefully that's going to make a difference. In 1918, the pandemic didn't make a difference. It, right. it didn't bring a change in race relations. It didn't create a social safety net. It brought us the 1920s. Um, so we can only hope which, we do better this time. Right. How much, I, I've always stayed fascinated, and, and we talk about it on this show a lot, by the media's role in all of these, all, all of the problems. <laughs> many, many great things that happen are, can be attributed mm-hmm. to the media, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But, but plenty of things that we wish we didn't have to deal mm-hmm. with could probably be attributed to the media, too. The, obviously, a completely different media environment, <laughs> if mm-hmm. any at all, in twenty um, in in nineteen eighteen through nineteen twenty. What what did the media play? It role did the media play? If the federal government wasn't, if President Wilson wasn't giving much information out, if the governments were not as a as loud as they are now, did the media play any role in helping to spread? important messages or negative messages either? The the media was, in fact, very, very important. Uh, And that's one of the things I think is important for us to understand is that though it was a very different media landscape, they had media. What they had were newspapers. uh, And newspapers were really, really important. So major cities might have, you know, 10 different newspapers. They would have a uh, you know, a German language newspaper. They might have a, a, a newspaper in Yiddish for recently arrived uh, Jewish immigrants. They might have Russian newspaper. They'd have, what I'm saying is every community had their own newspaper and even small towns might have a couple of newspapers. And in those newspapers, they would be running stories that they were getting from, you know, the international press. So they would be covering the pandemic in Europe and the pandemic in South America and what was happening in New York, as well as what was happening in Salem, Oregon, and what was happening in, you know, out in the small communities, outside of the small communities. They would tell you that Sister Sue's cousin was in town, uh, but she had just lost her mother to the pandemic. So they literally, down to the nitty gritty, also were really aware of the pandemic and who was being, who was dying, uh, how many people were dying. That was information that people really did have. And as a result, it was also the perfect venue for public health information. And they did routinely run important information, whether it was interviews with local public health leadership or uh, publications coming from the national or local public health boards. They were informing the public and generally even editorially supporting um, the flu eff- the flu mitigation efforts editorially were there were there dissenting voices surely uh, what's really interesting is less that it's it's less the editors than it is certain 
um, parts of the public. So there was always resistance to closures in communities um, around the closure of schools by educators and sometimes parents, around the closure of businesses by business people, around the closure of churches by church people. Uh, but usually, relatively quickly, people would fall in line. The difference from 1918 to 2020 is that the closures lasted so much, uh, such a shorter period of time. So in many communities, you're talking about two weeks of closure, not why two months, not because that's how influenza works. It spikes, it burns through the population, it spreads really quickly, and then it either sh- it either um, drifts to a new, slightly different uh, virus, or it has burned out itself in that population. As we know, also influenza dies out during the summer months and the warmer months as well. So it was a very different sort of epidemiological landscape. And as you say, I'm not a scientist. So did they know that though? Did they realize that, that, that it was that influenza would not be as potent throughout the summer? They certainly were hoping for it. And they assumed that if they did the right things relatively quickly, it would die out. Sometimes they could look at other cities where it had already happened. Uh, I live out on the West coast and we had the advantage in 1918 of looking at what had happened in New York and Philadelphia another eastern seaboard city. So they had a sense of sort of what the patterns would be. Uh, and again, would suffer renewed waves, sometimes associated with backing off from their protections. In other cases, it may be that it was a different, a slightly different virus coming through the population. I know you, I know a lot of your research focuses on, on the effects in America. Um, but one thing that's incredibly striking to me in looking at what you found as far as and what you write about as far as deaths and and the impact of this was that you said something along the lines of no one knows for sure but maybe 50 to 100 million people died from this pandemic worldwide is that right that's right um there are people who've done some really serious work with that and those are the those are the best figures at this point so so let's let's we'll be conservative here and say 50 million worldwide and around a half million in the United States. Um, but, and that sounds, I mean, that's, that's devastating. It's tragic. But when I look at the numbers for COVID in 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. we're looking at about the same number of deaths here in the United States from COVID out mm-hmm. of only 2.7 million worldwide. The percentage of deaths in the United States from COVID as as a percentage of the entire globe are so much so much so much larger than the one percent if that of of deaths that happened in the pandemic in 1918 mm-hmm. why do you think i know you're not an epidemiologist but is there is there exactly there so a reaction don't quote me on this <laughs> right but was there reaction elsewhere that was different I think one of the crucial differences is in 2020, we do have the capacities to mitigate the disease. We know, for instance, that social distancing and other non-pharmaceutical interventions make a difference. And so we have seen worldwide many communities act very quickly and as a sort of unified national way to put in place those interventions that can flatten the curve. If you can flatten the curve, we then have other things we can bring to bear, including, um, for instance, hospitalization and close care. Uh, the use of antibiotics for secondary infections. We have other technological interventions we can use um, so that you can save lives. Uh, In 1918, they didn't have those capacities. So in 1918, um, 
it didn't necessarily make, well, that's not quite how I want to put it. I mean, but, but, but the truth is, apparently they did something right in America in 1918, yep. if they could walk away with only 1% of the deaths worldwide taking place That's in right. the United States versus, I don't, I'm not a mathematician at all. I've got a math test with my son later and I, I'm, he'll, I'll probably make him fail. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but clearly much, much higher percentage um, of the deaths in 2020. So they must have done something right then, yeah? Right. And I think that's what's so interesting is in 1918, the United States has sufficient um, medical understanding to to try out these non-pharmaceutical interventions. They cannot see the virus. They don't have the technology to identify it, but they understand it's an airborne droplet infection. They know how to convince people um, or they know the kinds of methods they want people to engage in. They don't want them to spit in public. They don't want them to share a public drinking cup any longer. They want them to not go to school. They want them to stay out of church. And they apply those things in communities all across the country, large communities and small. Um, these public health interventions, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the same things we're doing now, wearing masks, quarantining, closing businesses, they use those across the country uh, and with with you know differing um, success rates depending on how fully they put them in place. So yeah, they did something right in 1918, absolutely. Even if they couldn't know it for sure, so they knew we what just, to try. And so we, we just in failed. 2020 just think we know better. <laughs> and we no, think we, we know that. We, we in 2020 didn't listen. In other words, we had all Well, that's what I mean, Americans, not the government. But we, we, we've yeah. gotten too comfortable with believing that we can beat a disease because we've beaten the flu. We didn't get the flu shot every year, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's a there seems to be a level of respect for disease in twenty mm-hmm. in nineteen eighteen that we didn't have that same level of respect in twenty twenty. Would that be a very bare bad summary of it, though? No, I think that's a fair summary. And I would add one other piece, which is I think there was a greater respect. For expertise, for science, for people who really had done the hard work of studying things and had learned things, verified information in laboratories um, that said, we we believe these are the best things to try. And people were willing to try those uh, and to, to try to have some trust. And I think that's one of the great um, tragedies of 2020 is that we had even better science uh, and, mm. and people were convinced not to believe those people. There's a kind of anti-intellectualism that has been really fomented, I'm afraid, of telling people, oh, those guys just think they're they're better than you. They think they know more than you. Well, there are people who know a whole lot more than me on a whole lot of things. And when I need information about medicine, I turn to the people who've done medical research. When I need to know which seed to plant in my garden, I will turn to the people who have done research on those kinds of things in agriculture. When I need some to decide what's going on with my dog, I will turn to a veterinarian. Right. For well, some we can't reason, pretend that's we can't pretend that anti-intellectualism started this past two years. That's been going on for a while. It certainly has. It's been it's been made um it was bound up with the pandemic, though, in a way that I think was really costly. Yeah. I mean, we we see the effects of it much, much more starkly. What what would do you wish we would learn from twenty from sorry from nineteen eighteen? Um, even now, even as we are starting to see, hopefully, please, a a light at the end of this tunnel here. Mm. Um, mm. 
the aftermath, the uh, the effects of of the twenty the nineteen eighteen sorry pandemic beyond the actual pandemic itself. What are things that we need to learn now as we're coming closer to the end of this, hopefully, that that we can take from the hundred years ago? I think that's a great question. And my hope for us going forward is that we will do a couple of things. One is that we will look really carefully at what happened, that we will do the intensive study of who did and didn't get access to care and really engage with the inequitable um, realities of, say, our healthcare system. That's a lesson that's just sitting there waiting for us to act on it, that we will study um, what did and didn't work in terms of getting the vaccine ready. In other words, in 1918, people just moved on. They didn't want to talk or think about it anymore. I hope that we won't do that, but that we will, in fact, continue to talk and study this pandemic. And alongside that, I hope that we will also continue to be aware of of the trauma so many people have been through. Uh, One of the things that happened after 1918 is that no one spoke of it, which means that a lot of people, remember 675,000 people had died. It means that there were millions of Americans still sort of grieving in the aftermath. And that was just unremarked upon. And I really hope that we can have in our hearts and in our minds a much greater space um, for, for that trauma that so many people um, will be living with, not just next week, but next year, maybe next decade, right? This doesn't just go away for those who've either been very sick or for those who've lost loved ones. And it would be a really um, tremendous success if we could really attend to that grief uh, as communities, as families, and as a nation, and as really as a globe. Um, as you, I know, are, are very interested in, uh, we don't get along very well right now. Mm-hmm. This should be a place where we should be able to find our shared humanity and a place in which we should also be able to recognize that some of us have suffered much more than others and attend as well um, to the realities that have made that happen. It's, it's, it's fascinating that you mentioned that because one of, the, one of the reasons we wanted specifically to have you on this week um, is that this is specifically the week where we closed down our live nice. production of our shows. And we went into quarantine one year ago this week. And our first episode um, in quarantine, we had uh, a panel of, of people from sort of across the political spectrum at the time. Um, and everyone's tone was, as you said, getting, you know, trying to understand that this is something that is not to be politicized. This is something that we need to, to tackle as a entire country without party lines, no partisanship, yeah. et cetera. And there was it was a, a very collegial mm. discussion with great. member members of Congress from one side of the aisle and very outspoken pundits from the other side of the aisle. And it was almost peaceful. And yeah. we asked the question, how long will this collegiality last? And all of them on that call, on that particular episode, said that they believed that it would stay when it came to, to in terms of speaking about this mm. pandemic and this particular crisis. Mm. Well, let me tell you, Nancy, next week, <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> and we very wow. quickly made this a uh, very partisan issue. Um, and so it, it's interesting that you say that. We all agree. I think we all agree this should not have, or agreed this should not have been partisan. But you're right. It, it absolutely has become that way um, for far more reasons than we'll ever be able to identify 
on a podcast, but I do have a lot of questions from listeners because we ask listeners Mm. to uh, tell them who's going to be on and ask them to send in some questions uh, to our listeners. You can do that. If you're listening, you can write in and um, do that at podcasts at politicon.com, or you can email us or send us a message on Twitter or Instagram at politicon. Shauna from Tacoma, so not far from you. Oh, not far from me. That's where my university is. That's so wonderful. Shauna. (laughs) Um, Shauna asks, it seems like very few leaders draw contrasts to 1918. Have they forgotten the lessons of the past too? That's a really good question. One of the things I really worry about for our country is is a tendency to not know very much about our past. And I'm not blaming here the the politicians or any leadership in particular, but I do think that we've really de-emphasized the investigation of the harder moments in our history. Uh, So I think you're raising a really good question, which is, don't we all have a responsibility to be learning the lessons of our past? And, And I think the only way we move forward toward the kind of future we all want, um, which is a, you know, well, I won't even try to describe the future I hope we all want, but one in which people are healthy and have the opportunities open to them that they deserve, um, is by understanding where we've come from. And 1918 has so many valuable lessons for us about how you have to handle this as a national issue, how you need to actually try these non-pharmaceutical interventions, how it's really important that people pull together and work on this uh, as communities, how important it is to look out, especially for those who are most vulnerable among us. And for some reason, those lessons were just lost. Um, and it's, and for me, a gr- the great tragedy of 2020 has been how little we seem to have learned from what was this just obvious parallel um, experience from which there was much to learn. So, Sean, I think you're you're absolutely right that we all need to be attentive. And I don't say this. Perhaps that is why I'm a historian is that I really believe that deeply. Um, well, but I, I guess ask, it's my call often, or my my go team go for for history study. How I think often do you be studying history? How often do you watch the news and think, "Oh crap! If you had just realized that the same problem happened 50 years ago, or 60 years ago, or 100 years ago," I mean, as a historian, doesn't that come to your mind? We we live in a cyclical world. I mean, the same issues that we're facing now are draw incredible parallels to to problems we had 50, 60, 100 years ago. This is not the only one. I'm assuming. I mean, don't you get that same frustration a lot? <laughs> I do. And yet it's not always frustration because it also, those comparisons can also see you, help you see what's changed. I think historians are interested both in the continuities and the changes. And you can sometimes see things that make you say, ah, see there, there, there's somewhere where we've done it right. And we've moved forward and we're, you know, we are more humane to one another than we once were. Um, My students really relish those opportunities too, to see the, the parallels and the differences Uh, I think of the shootings that just happened in Atlanta on Tuesday. And in my class this morning, we'll be pausing to make the connections back to some of the other things we've studied, which helps us see the through lines to identify, you know, what are the problems that have been with us for decades or centuries uh, that have been really hard for us to solve? Where have we made gains and why are those easier uh, gains to make? So, yes, I sometimes have that frustration, but it's it's an essential part of what we do as historians is to make those look for those parallels, look for where we've changed and look for those places where we find it very difficult to change. Okay, this one from Crystal in Austin, Texas, is interesting to me um, as a as a 
doctor yourself, a doctor of, of, of history, um, you can maybe be able to help her out with this. She said, there's so many conflicting claims. How can we know mm-hmm. if we're reading sound science? That's such a great question. Somebody literally emailed me yesterday to, to ask, how do I know if I'm reading good history? And I had a really easy answer for that. And let me give it a go with, with scientific uh, information. Yeah, well, just any any facts, you, any any information. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's always to make sure that the person has evidence to back up their claims. In other words, you shouldn't just say, do this or this is true without helping a reader or a listener understand where that information has come from. Uh, ask what someone's sources are, and they should be able to provide those. Uh, and in turn, think about who is telling you this. Is it someone who actually has done research on that subject matter or is it rather uh, someone um, who is coming at it from a, a very clear partisan perspective? And that can be a partisan perspective on either side of the aisle, of course. Mm, always. <laughs> um, Darren from Santa Barbara, one more listener um, question. Darren from Santa Barbara asks, it didn't seem like modern outbreaks like SARS did as much psychological damage to the country as COVID. Will people ever feel normal? Oh, we don't tend to prognosticate about the future. It's a question we're all asking. Uh, and I, so I understand the but, question. But from yeah, in ahead. terms of in terms of after the the pandemic of the of of 1918 to 1920, you mentioned a, a little bit ago about how that led us in, in in a way that led came right into the to the roaring 20s. Can we expect yeah. another roaring 20s um, <laughs> ourselves? And I think we I certainly look forward to a future um, that has all those things that we have missed so much. So whether it's being able to hug our friends or be in class with my students or have a barbecue in my backyard, I'm looking forward to getting back to that normal. Uh, I hope that our economy can be resurgent quickly. Uh, Certainly in 1918, those communities that had done the best job fighting the flu and had suffered the fewest um, illnesses and deaths resurged faster and, and quicker. Um, So I hope that we will see all of our communities um, face a good resurgence. When I think about getting back to normal, though, I'll be what I tend to think about is wanting a new normal. I want the good stuff back, but I want us to learn from what we've just been through. I really hope we can come out of this with a sense that there are things we should ask of ourselves to do better. There are things that we should demand of our government. I don't want to ever see another pandemic in which Members of the indigenous, Latin and black communities die at such high rates relative to my own white community. It's unconscionable. I, I think that we should demand that that kind of thing not be allowed in our country. We should be better than that. So I hope we'll go into a new normal with an enhanced empathy and a willingness to really look at ourselves and where we failed in 2020 and 2021 and, and think about how we want to be better um, ourselves and, and in our relationships with one another. Um, we we have folks on to talk about new books a lot, but the reason we had uh, Dr. Bristow on this week, um, I've already mentioned, but if you're listening, American Pandemic, uh, the subtitle is The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Pandemic, um, or Epidemic, sorry, American Pandemic. It is really a fascinating look at something that I think we did not even realize or remember had happened. Any Well, Dr. Bristow, you knew, remembered it had happened because um, you wrote the book a few years ago, but we had we had completely ignored this part of our history, um, and I'm a history nerd myself, so it's fascinating hmm. to me, and I 
I, I encourage you, if you're listening, to go grab it um, and to to take a look at this and look at some of the parallels we've talked about today. Look at some of the um, uh, the things that we can learn, especially what you were just talking about, Nancy, about not allowing this particular pandemic that we've just lived through to return us to the status quo, which is sort of what the first one did um, and, and cemented that then and learning some of the lessons of what they did well then and what we should have done better, but not just the coulda, shoulda, woulda, but also looking at the history of a hundred years ago and trying to make sure that we don't make some of the same mistakes. And so if, if you're listening, I hope you will um, take a take a second to grab American Pandemic um, and, and learn a little bit about something that I think we all wish we had known more about five years ago um, instead of uh, waiting to learn it after we'd gone through <laughs> a pandemic of our own. So... Thank you so much for being with us. I, I want to know, not just with regard to, to you know, healthcare crisis and not just with, but as a historian um, who has studied so much more about American history beyond just that one pandemic, can you take, a, take us, give us a second to tell us how the heck are we going to get along in 2021? Oh, Clay, if I had the answer to that. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I wish, but right. But there but there is there is there is something, there's some lesson from history to learn, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's it, which is I think, and maybe it's because I'm an historian, so I have a bit of a bias, obviously. But I really think knowing the past and really studying how we've come to be where we are right now really can enhance our empathy for one another. In other words, if you know why people are taking the kinds of positions they take in 2021, by looking back 100 years, 50 years, 40 years last week, it really makes a difference because you can at least understand the stance that people are taking. It doesn't mean you agree with them, but it means you understand in a human kind of way how they got to that spot. And I think often we discover um, in some cases that people have... um, have reasons for the positions that they're taking. So when Black Lives Matter emerged, if you know the history, it made complete sense. If you didn't know the history, you know many people were upset by it. It's like, if you know the history of violence against Black citizens of the United States, it's remarkable that we didn't see Black Lives Matter much earlier than we have. And I'm so grateful that we have that movement among us now. Um, and again, that's so easy to see if you know the history, but without it, Right, people then reach all kinds of other conclusions that are absolutely wrong-headed, unfortunately. So I really believe that empathy comes from studying those that you don't know and those that you don't agree with. So I've probably made my, you know, where I stand fairly easily discernible. It's really incumbent on me to really work to understand, you know, those who have who have refused to wear masks and those who have you know, promulgated the idea that the vaccine is dangerous or useful. I need to to understand how people came to those places um, in order to be able to speak with them and try to help us move forward together. 